Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet novelist Joy Calloway, author of Secret Sisters and the Fifth Avenue Artist Society, both published by Harper. The New York Daily News described the Fifth Avenue Artist Society as the creative sisterhood of little women, the social scandal of Edith Wharton, and the courtship mishaps of Jane Austen, a delightful and at times touching tale of Gilded Age society and creative ambition with an inspiring heroine. An RTF book reviews calls Secret Sisters a compulsive feminist read, a rich drama showcasing the disparity between men and women, rich and poor, on a 19th century college campus. Joy starts the show with the reading from her most recent novel, Secret Sisters, where two of the main characters are plotting the idea of forming a women's fraternity at their co-ed college in 1881, a time when such ideas are foreign to such male-dominated institutions of the day. Why are you here, I asked. Rather than home, I mean. Miss Adams' hooded brown eyes snapped to mine, a smile on her lips. That imbecile Mr. Simon, and others, I suppose. They thought it would be humorous to tell me that female students were required to polish the instruments before dismissal. Since Professor Deal had to depart from Milwaukee, I didn't have anyone to ask and didn't want to risk the marks for not doing it. Luckily, Professor Graham happened to walk by the music room last night and nearly had me written up for startling him. Miss Adams laughed propped up her black kid leather boots on the stone hearth. It was quite hilarious, actually. He was going round extinguishing the hall lamps when I called out. His eyes were round as saucers, but now I've missed my train, and Mother will be alone this year. Of course, she could impose it of friends. She very well could, but she keeps to herself around Christmas time. My father died the day after, 18 years ago, and it's still a day of mourning in our house. The notion seems strange. A woman like Judith Adams, who did so much good for other women, having nowhere to go. I wish there was a way to get both of you home, Lily said softly, her eyes cast toward the fire. I reached over and squeezed her hand. I'd rather be here with you, I said. Now that I know Miss Zephaniah hasn't had you locked in the attic all this time, why are you two still here, Mary asked. At once I told her everything, about how hard I'd worked on my original midwifery term paper, spending long hours at Richardson Library, interviewing mothers from Witsit's head cook to the woman working the soda counter in town, and then how Professor Pearson had deemed it a failing study, giving me a chance to rewrite it with a physician's eye less partial to the female condition. 
How terrible, Miss Adams said. I'd like to throttle him. And Mr. Simon, too. I was rather hoping he'd be dismissed, but now, thanks to Iota Gamma, he'll be by my side for the remainder of our music courses. I can't fathom it anyway. Mr. Simon, a conductor? Miss Adams tipped her chin up, and at once I could see her, baton in hand, leading an orchestra. Is there nothing to be done, Lily asked. She situated her velvet skirt and passed the tray of desserts back to Mary. We have all been ostracized, penalized for our ambitions. It's not fair. Can you imagine the divinity girls being treated this way? There would be an uproar. Her earlier words struck me. They have each other. And then I thought of Iota Gamma, of the presence they had on campus, of the respect they demanded. I know secret societies are forbidden, but what if we were careful? What if we started a women's fraternity? For us, for the others, for the women after us. I could hear the pitch in my voice rising, the excitement building. I could see it, the three of us, united and then the nine of us. We wouldn't be mistreated then. We wouldn't allow it. We, we need each other, I said, looking to Lily and then to Miss Adams for some sort of sign that they agreed, but both of their faces gave nothing away. If nothing else, for the camaraderie. We need not start a fraternity to become friends, Lily said. She was hesitant for good reason as she attended Witsit on a scholarship given by her orphanage. One misstep and her support would be revoked. Her dream of becoming a librarian dashed. Could you endure it if it got worse, Miss Adams asked, suddenly turning to Lily. I suspect I'll be the subject of ridicule for the next two years unless something is done. I think it's a wonderful idea, Miss Carrington, a daring idea. My mother would be heartened to hear I was a part of something so important. We couldn't tell your mother, Miss Adams. I have no doubt Witsit would find it advantageous to have us removed from college for breaking our covenant, I said. And please call me Beth. Mary, please, Miss Adams said. If we don't plan to tell anyone about it, how do you suppose we'll ever be recognized? We don't have a Grant Richardson campaigning for our cause, Lily said. I grinned, barely hearing the criticism in her question. She thought the initiative important enough to be a part of it. I don't know, but I'm confident we can find a way. Right now, we need each other. We need to begin. Determination and endurance are more powerful than any Grant Richardson. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. Oh, and speaking of audiobooks, and now that uh, it's already November and Christmas is around the corner, I'd like to uh, let you know that my three books in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy are now uh, on audiobooks and you can find all three wherever you like to get your audiobooks and also at Libro.fm. I'm really excited about the fact that I connected uh, with uh, an actor in uh, LA who is the narrator for this series. His name is uh, Bill A. Jones. He's best known for uh, his role as Rod Remington from Fox TV's Glee. But he's also appeared in a number of other uh, shows days of our lives the king of queens the drew carey show and much much more he's really a funny guy and he's uh, he's a singer as well and he does justice to this series that's a cross between my cousin benny and miracle on 34th street 
You can listen to all three audiobooks uh, wherever you like to get your audiobooks, or you can get the first ebook uh, for free by signing up for our email list or pretty much on any retail site now. And the uh, other two books, if you want to listen on audiobook, you get uh, those two for the price of one if you join Libra.fm with that promo code Charlotte Reader, all one word. With that said, I've got a little bit more about the author and then the interview, more readings, uh, and the writing life segment. So hope you enjoy. Joy Calloway is the author of two novels, The Fifth Avenue Artist Society, Harper 2016, and Secret Sisters, Harper 2017. Formerly a marketing director for a wealth management company, she now operates as a full-time mom and writer. Her love of storytelling is a direct result of her parents' insistence that she read books or write stories instead of watching TV. Her interest in family history was fostered by a relative's habit of recounting tales of ancestors' lives. Joy holds a BA in Journalism and Public Relations from Marshall University and an MMC in Mass Communication from the University of South Carolina. She resides in Charlotte with her husband John, her children, Olivia, and John. Joy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of it. Yeah, and congratulations on your two historical fiction novels. Oh, thanks. You know, um, I was talking to someone recently and, and they said, isn't, you know, being into history kind of nerdy? And I thought, yeah, definitely. But I'll, I'll claim that. I'll, I'll have that badge. So, yes, thank you. I love history. And it's just been a great experience to get to write these two novels and kind of live back in time for a couple couple of years. Yeah, well, I was a history major in college. I love history. I love watching history. I love looking up historical facts after I watch something on TV or read a book to see if if they're true or not. So <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking uh, historical uh, fiction today and uh, talking about both of your books today. But first, let's uh, let's talk a little bit, Joy, about your love of storytelling and your family history. Uh, I mentioned in your bio that uh, you said that your storytelling was kind of a direct result of your parents' insistence that you read books or write stories. How so? Well, my parents actually, uh, and my kids don't like this because I kind of mimic it with them, but um, they they really, uh, we were allowed to watch TV once a week, TGIF on Nickelodeon. Um, and we thought that was a big deal, you know, but before that, you know, my mom thought kids have great imaginations and it's kind of a shame to waste them if you can, if you can encourage people to learn and explore. And so she always encouraged, and so did my dad, just, imaginative play and so when we got older and you know we were, would our friends would be like hey have you seen you know whatever show my mom would say well and we'd be begging for it and she'd say no you know you got to entertain yourself read some books or or write some stories and it got to the point where I mean I really at some point embraced it because I remember I would get really into certain his, historical um, time periods or you know different happenings like I was really into the Titanic at one point and so I wrote a big magazine and we made photocopies and I went around to the neighbors and sold my magazine. So, um, which I live, I bought my husband and I bought my parents' house, the house I grew up in. So my neighbors still recall this. And my daughter actually, the other day, she had written a bunch of books and wanted to go around and sell them. And I, and I would say there's been inflation since I went around. I was just asking for like a penny or whatever they wanted to give me. And she's like, Nope, they're a dollar. So Anyway, yeah. uh, but it was great. You know, it's one of those situations where it just really fostered my um, my love for writing and my love for storytelling because it is, it's, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of default or they say, I wish there was a show. Or I wish there was a book about X. And for us writers, we get to, we get to create what we want to see in the world. So it's really nice. And I'm thankful for that. What kind of books were you reading when you were growing up? A lot of classic literature. So 
we started out, you know, with Black Beauty, the Black Stallion. I was really into horses also for a time. Um, and then, you know, I moved on later to, you know, the Brontes and Jane Austen, Edith Wharton. And, you know, even in high school, that's what I would pick up um, if I read anything. And I think that also kind of led into me loving history, because even though those novels are not necessarily classified historical fiction, they're historical fiction, you know, it's, um, and it gave me a really great love for just the the depth of literature and the way the turns of phrase and the way that um, classic novelists, you know, they wrote a diff, they wrote in a different style and a different way than we do now. But I just appreciated it so much. And to this day, I still love getting into one of those novels and seeing kind of the depth of the the prose in there. I that's my first love, you know. So, so what happened to Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and all that kind of thing? I love Nancy Drew too. I actually <laughs> found a really great at the. Um, at the library here over off of Ray Road, I came across one time in the book sales section, someone was selling their old Nancy Drews that were, you know, like, for like, what, 25 cents a book. And so I had this whole collection for my daughter when she gets old enough. And I've been trying to find a collection of the Hardy Boys, too, for my son. But I think those are still like you open those books, those the richness of that, of the language in those. And then you look at the contemporary, you know, like, like, you know, I think you have to have a mix, you have to have a mix of kind of entertainment, factor books that are quick reads and then also some that maybe you read to enhance your vocabulary and to kind of learn from them. So I don't know. I think there's value in everything. I remember, you know, when I was growing up, the babysitter's club was really big too. And well, I think it's great that you were using your imagination at such a young age. We have a Patreon channel and this past summer, I uh, I interviewed a 10 year old who started a little magazine like you and she's writing stories just to find out what the, mind of a 10 year old is about imagination and and it was just it's great it's a free episode on patreon anyone can go listen to it so uh if you're all listening go, and should go check that out it's uh it, the one thing she <laughs> i recall her saying is that you know sometimes adults forget that they can have an imagination you know yeah. and as a writer that's what you get to do right right you know the thing is i tell people sometimes when i do talks and people ask you know how'd you get into writing well for me i didn't major in English. I didn't um, study necessarily, you know, how to be an author. I think it came a little bit later for me. You know, I did PR for a long time. And then I, I tell people all the time, if you think about what you did as a child and what you loved as a child, generally speaking, you still love that. It doesn't necessarily mean you could do it for a job. But in my case, you know, I just simply forgot that there was an option for me to write books for a living. And I think that um, you never you never kind of escape what you loved as a kid. And so sometimes it's good to look back and, and explore that and see, you know. Yeah. And that uh, leads to the second part uh, of the equation I want to talk to you about. Um, Storytelling was number one, but number two is this family history that kind of weaves its way into your stories. You said your relatives had a habit of recounting tales of their ancestors' lives. Um, And you've taken some of those tales and you've worked them uh, into your story. So was this kind of sit on the porch and hear, you know, about Uncle Joe and Aunt Maud and so forth and so on and all the stories that were told about the family? You know, it's this strange thing. Um, <laughs> my family actually, from I didn't realize this was an unusual till, you know, I guess I started writing, but our family, especially one side of my family in particular, my grandma, um, my maternal grandma talks a lot about family history and she's really always been very into um, talking about ancestry, but more in a way of like that they're actually, you know, it'll just, it's not like we designated time to talk about it. It just comes up in conversation, you know, um, what really 
made me first write, want to write about my ancestors was that, you know, you walk in, we always had Christmas in West Virginia at my grandparents' house and you walk in the door and you walk to the living room and there's all these, she was, she loved her family history. And so there's, and still does, we talk about it all the time. Even yesterday, we were having a conversation about some ancestor of hers, but you walk in and there were portraits on the walls of all these people that we were related to. And I knew all about them because it was just like, oh yeah, you know, um, Olivia over here, she was a, she was a concert pianist and, you know, they lived in the Bronx and, um, they were, they were all artists and it was just, everything just poured out. And then talk, talking about her parents, um, that owned a floor, a nursery in Rye, New York, and then back to like Miles Standish and like him coming over and we were related to both of his wives. It's just, this thing, it's almost as if they're still alive and they're still around and it's kind of just keeping your history alive and almost as if, you know, the people you're talking about are living still, they're just off, you know, somewhere you can't see them. It's this really stream of consciousness type of conversation, almost referring to them nearly as much as you would someone who's still here. And so I got to know them pretty well, you know, in story form. And so it was kind of a natural thing to write about the story. So I just, I found them remarkable. Yeah, we're going to be talking uh, and, and having you read uh, from the Fifth Avenue Artist Society in the second half of the show. It's your first novel. Um, there's kind of a direct relationship between what you learned from your family and the writing of that book. And uh, how about just telling us what that is and how that played out? Sure. So as I kind of mentioned a moment ago, with the portraits in my grandmother's house, they were, they were her name is Olivia. And um, she's named after her great grandmother. And um, basically, she had all the Olivia portraits because the great grandmother's daughter was also Olivia. And um, we would often talk about the fact that Olivia, the first one, was this, you know, that she was named after her. And she was this kind of Victorian, um, typical Victorian woman. But she, her um, maiden name was Van Pelt, and they were related to the Dutch settlers of New York. And then on, um, and then Olivia, her daughter was a concert pianist and, um, in that family and Olivia's siblings were also artists of all different kinds. So you had Virginia, who was a writer, you had, um, Anne, who was a, a milliner, like a hat maker. You had Franklin, who was a uh, painter. And then you had, um, then you had Alice, who was a teacher. There were five of them and only one went on and got married, um, which is unusual during the Gilded Age, especially given there were four women, which, at that point in time, women were just supposed to, the primary role of a woman was to get married and have children. So it was unusual that they didn't. They also knew all these famous um, actors and artists. And at that point in time, it, that would have been unusual too, just because women and men didn't share their art. Art was considered from music to writing to um, acting, you name it, it was considered a, a man's profession. So and you didn't really critique each other's work. That was a big no-no, you know, beyond the Parisian salons. And uh, especially here, it wasn't really, you know, you wouldn't have really known each other, not to mention, you know, it was un improper probably to have certain types of conversations with the opposite sex at that point. So I found their story really unusual and also very neat because they also lived kind of in this, what you would consider genteel poverty because of their last name or their her mother's maiden name, Van Pelt. They were allowed in certain circles because of their connection to the Dutch settlers of New York, but they were pretty poor. And they lived in Mott Haven, which was a, a suburb of 
in the Bronx. Um, and they lived in a family home as well. It was their, um, their grandfather's home, who was a Civil War um, veteran for the Union. And he um, was also an Irish immigrant. And it was just, you know, their, their family's home. Um, but the, it was interesting because of the way that when I got to write the story, I got to explore kind of what everyone thinks of New York Gilded Age, which is, you know, the lavishness of life. And then actually what real life was like for a lot of people during the Gilded Age um, and, and exploring what my ancestors' life would have been like. It was a huge gift to be able to step into their shoes for the duration of a year and write them. And to be honest, those characters are some of the truest characters I've ever written because they were real people. And so there was this pressure to do them justice. And it also gave this authenticity to them. It wasn't these, this character I was making up. It was somebody who lived and someone who I was trying to really... Um, just honor in the story. Yeah. And you've had several serendipitous circumstances with, uh, your research here. Uh, you came across some diaries, uh, mm -hmm. regarding, uh, the main character in fifth Avenue, uh, artist society. And you stumbled across an interesting fact in secret sisters. What's going on there? The universe is just <laughs> sh sharing, sharing things with you after you write about these people. I don't know. You know, the weird part about it is like even my next story ideas, I was collecting them. And then I'm talking about it to my grandma, like, oh yeah, this person seems really interesting. And she's like, yep, well, she's related to my sister because she has a half sister. She's related to my half sister. You could talk to her about it. And I'm like, of course she is because it just, you know, everything just seems to go that way. It's fun though. Actually, you know, for me, I prefer it because it doesn't give you super a ton of flexibility because you are writing a real person, but that's all of historical fiction mostly. Um, but I, I find it makes characters a lot more true to life. And, and I do extensive research to make sure that I'm not taking them out of, you know, making, making their character something it wasn't in real life. Um, of course, you have to play with history a little but Well, I might start getting worried. You know, you write these books and then you find this, uh, you know, diary and a rare book website that, uh, you know, ties back to the character you've been writing about. And then after you complete Secret Sisters and turn in your page proofs, you get a random email. Tell us about that. So to not spoil anything for th with Fifth Avenue, because um, Fifth Avenue is 60% true. So some of the things that happened, you know, in our ancestry, I write about, and one of those is a spoiler. So I'm going to go around that a little bit. But there was some, there's someone in, um, in Fifth Avenue that kind of encompasses a huge family secret of ours. And no one really knew what happened in real life. Um, but I love Ancestry, obviously. So I've been on Ancestry for quite some time. And I had a friend uh, that I met on Ancestry who was a distant relative who decided he was going to take it upon himself to figure this mystery out. And um, I get an email after I, my page proofs, I think, were due two days before this or maybe two days after. It was something very, you know, like the book's almost finished. And he, he emails me and he's like, Joy, I, I figured it out. I figured out this mystery. And instead, and he emails me pictures of this woman who's related to us and related to this mystery and their sorority composites of, um, and she was a Pi Phi, which is arguably one of the one or the first sorority um, in America. And, you know, I just finished a book about writing about a fictional first sorority. So it was this weird thing. Also, the, the, she was on no at Knox College, which coincidentally, is also one of the colleges I based my fictional college on and did a lot of research into. 
So it was just a really strange thing. And I thought, okay, well, I guess you wanted your story told then, lady. So, so there it is. <laughs> yeah, it has this sort of field of dreams feel, you know, build it and they will come. In your case, it's write it and they will show up somewhere in your life. That's right. <laughs> so I better be careful who I write about. Yes, right. So let's circle back a minute to the opening read uh, from Secret Sisters here. You you have three characters. Uh, they are at this uh, Whitsitt College um, in 1881. They're in an environment where uh, the men outnumber the women. The women are sort of second-class citizens. Uh, it's a time in our country where women don't have the right to vote. And one of the characters in this opening read, her mother, is a suffragette. And, uh, you know, you've got Beth Kerrigan uh, in this scene who wants to be a doctor. Um, and, um, you know, they're all plotting now kind of early to form a female fraternity, which is what we call today a sorority. Um, so talk a little bit about that time in history. Um, tell us what women were facing at that time in higher education. Yes, this is a really strange time in history for women seeking an education at all. Um, in the Gilded Age, about 2% of women went to college. So that's very, very low number. Uh, you know, on the surface, people would say, well, it's expensive. A lot of people couldn't afford that. That's true. But if you also look at the medical truths of the day, you sort of you start to understand also that there's a, a you know underlying reason why no one got a higher education. And that was because, um, truly, because I did a lot of research and looked at old medical um, journals and things like that, there was a truth of the day, of the day that said that if women thought too hard, the blood flow would escape from their reproductive organs and just gather in their brain. And it would actually cut off the blood flow to the reproductive organs. And then you would be left basically um, unable to have children. So um, that was, it was a risk, right? So back then that's what they thought. They thought that's true. Okay. Well, uh, so, you know, yeah, 98% of women not going to school at this point um, and not seeking higher education. Yeah. Some people probably couldn't afford it. The other people probably were scared. So, you know, you, you had this going on, um, not to mention that, so you had that, that portion going on, but if you did, let's say you did decide, well, you know, I don't believe that I'm going to risk it. Education is important. What have you. And you went to school, you had a couple options, you know, at this point in time, um, colleges were still pretty sex segregated in the North and the South. The only time you really saw co-education happening was in the Midwest, and that was because of the Universalist Church and their influence there. They believed in, um, you know, female pastors. They believed in um, co-ed education. They believed that women should be educated. And so I thought that was interesting, and that's why Secret Sisters is set on a co-ed campus, um, because you, you had this establishment where they were like, you know, the Universalist Church is establishing colleges and saying, we need to educate women and men, and they're welcome here. But at the same time, you had these, you still had these medical truths floating around, and you still had um, a little tiny bit of women even attending. And then if they were attending, they were, they were studying to become like Sunday school teachers, or they were studying to become, you know, secretaries or something like that. They weren't really, um, breaking out in large numbers. And so what you start to see happening on the co-ed campuses is you have this tiny, tiny, tiny group of people who are studying things like medicine or music, which was still very um, uh, male focused back then, or, uh, you know, attorneys, there was like no attorneys back then that were women or um, 
deans of schools education was still considered a male dominated profession. So it was a weird time for them. So they, you know, you were on this campus, you were alone, pretty much, you were still pretty ridiculed in the classroom. You know, if you were going to be a doctor, for instance, in my main character's position, you had to go into the into your studies, knowing you're going to learn that, you know, well, you've just chosen to forego a family, <laughs> because, you know, the medical truth, they're going to teach you that the blood flow is going to escape to your brain. And that's it. <laughs> so well, you talk about <clears throat> this idea of the blood flow escaping to the brain and how women are this and that. I suppose that could be some expose on cable news now and people would probably believe it, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know, uh, the, the, but the problem was not just what you mentioned there, but uh, as you lay it out in your book, once they got to school, uh, they were belittled. So, you know, the main character, she's trying to study medicine. Uh, the professor keeps calling her a nurse instead of, you know, a doctor, or she's heading to nursing school, even though she's studying to be a doctor. Uh, there was even one scene, I just thought this was amazing. They forced women to take a test in the hall, believing that their presence in the classroom could break the concentration of the men. <laughs> mm -hmm. That actually happened. And, you know, I've had a lot of comments on this book being like, that didn't happen. That you're just, you know, putting stuff in there to be dramatic. And I'm like, no, I'm not. So basically, you know, I, I did my research. I read diaries from women back then and also looked at um, even rules and regulations from different colleges and what, how they, how they set, would separate the women and men so that men could concentrate. They truly believed that if like, a lady walked into the room, well, all bets are off, you know? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, and, it, and in the constitutional law class, the professor said that women weren't protected by the Constitution because British precedent suggested that person means man. And of course, they've been struggling with these pronoun issues for for years since then. But I love the, I don't know if this is the same medical condition, but the hysteria, I think it was later in the book, uh, uh, Beth was yawning in class and this professor said, well, it looks like she's coming down with hysteria. Yeah. You know, is anything like that, it, anything that a woman kind of like went a little bit out of the norm or they didn't like what she was doing. And so then it's suddenly like, well, you, you're crazy. So let's lock you up, which is not funny. I mean, there was just so many women who just got, you know, locked up for that or treated medically and given horrible drugs because there was no FDA back then um, to calm them or to silence them or to, you know, make sure that they were kind of in line. And really I got a lot of my inspiration for Beth from a couple of people, but, primarily Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first female physician in the country, she got voted into medical school. And the reason was because the men thought it was a joke. So they were presented with, hey, do you want to let this woman in? And the guys were like, yeah, whatever, like, sure, let her in. So they voted her in. Well, she was so jeered and so ridiculed that she had to sit next to the professor for the duration of her time in medical school, because she just couldn't Otherwise, there was no no way she she was just constantly like, you know, confronted with these different medical truths and just asked why she was there and just constantly she could barely study. So they had to do something about it, which is why she was in a desk next to the professor. And they couldn't see you do it. But when you said medical truths, you had the air quotes. Beside yeah. It, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this kind of this might be a rhetorical question, but, uh, you know, why was it so important then for uh, female fraternities, because when I first thought about this, you think of sororities today, sometimes you think, well, they're, they're party houses or they're, yeah. but, but, but at this point in time, given what you've described, it sounds like there was 
there was a reason for the formation of such a fraternity. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, that's that's actually something. When I first, the reason, the way I came up with this idea in the first place was I had a friend of mine who's a romance writer, and she wrote me and she said, I had a dream about you and you were in a sorority. I don't know what that means, but, you know, if it's something for your books, great. And I wrote her back and I said, well, I was in a sorority for a time during college. I said, um, I was actually the historian for Alpha Phi Delta, which is funny. Um, but I told her, I was like, I don't write contemporary fiction. And she said, well, when did they start? You know, why? And I just suddenly it just clicked to me. I started thinking about the way sororities are perceived. The fact that, yeah, you know, it's, people are always saying you buy your friends or it's just to party and all this. Well, if you look at the history and what I did was I took every Panhellenic sorority and looked at their history and did a deep dive into who the founders were and why they started it. And the underlying thing was basically that they, they needed each other. You know, all these women were from different places. They'd come from different areas and moved across the country sometimes to go to school. And then they had nobody. They had no support at all. And so it's this thing where women were coming together because they had to, because otherwise they had no support throughout their time in college. And as we all know, emotional support is so important in any endeavor, um, but they needed each other. And it was, if you look at who the founders were and what their mission was, it was simply to help each other through. And these people, had they not, you know, who knows if they would have completed their studies, who knows if they would have just given up at some point, just out of mental duress alone, and they are um, some of the countries they're so important to women's history because a lot of these women are the are the first women in any profession. So you could look at the first female doctors, the first female musicians of the time, the first um, pastors, the first lawyers, the first deans. I mean, the list goes on. These are some people who are just trailblazers for us. And I think that the vast majority of people in this day and age have no idea that that's that the sororities histories go that deep and are that important to our, our culture and our, and our world. Okay. Well, and there's also a risk to uh, having a fraternity like this. Uh, you know, there's some secrets to be kept and uh, we're going to take our short break. When we come back, we're going to find out what those risks are. You're going to have a little uh, second read from secret sisters that uh, it's kind of a moment uh, in the book here for this uh, character at, uh, as far as the administration is concerned, we're going to talk a little bit about uh the uh, first novel you wrote and, and, and have a reading there and talk the writing life. So, hey, listeners, stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. 
Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I'm a speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, other mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes. Uh, scroll to the bottom and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm back with Joy Calloway. She's the author of the Fifth Avenue Artist Society and also Secret Sisters. And in the first half of the show, we've been talking about Secret Sisters. And we got to a point where uh, we we discussed, uh, as you recall, how uh, these were fraternities, uh, later turned into sororities for women. They needed them for camaraderie to help each other because the male-dominated population wasn't treating them uh, right. And uh, yet they had to keep it a secret. Uh, and what was the risk, Joy, if they got caught? Well, back during the 1880s, which is um, a you know, a time in history when you had even um, a lot of Greek letter organizations, even male fraternities were under fire from a lot of colleges because they'd had some accidents um, as of late during that time period. And they were basically being accused of using a lot of Masonic um, ritual in their, in their um, initiations. And it was actually very hazardous. So you had a lot of deaths actually from hazing. So a lot of colleges just said, you know, no more, we're not going to have Greek letter organizations at all. And so um, right now it, at Witsit in this, in the portion I'm about to read, um, they have actually outlawed all Greek letter organizations except for one, which is the Iota Gamma fraternity. And the reason is because the, um, the president of that is the son of a very influential, um, businessman and he contributes a lot to the college. And so they allow it. So, that's, that's Grant Richardson, who you mentioned in the opening read, who, who kind of plays a part throughout this book in terms of representing sort of the male side of the equation here. Right. And, and I want to point out too that with sorority history, um, men weren't always, you know, uh, on the opposing side of this, in the establishment of Alpha Delta, Sigma Nu was actually a very, very, um, a, a presence that wanted to help. And so I think that's important to say, because so often you look at like books that are particularly, um, about women's rights and the tendency is like, well, um, to think, well, are, were men against 
their rights and some were some were not and you still had that that advocate group um present and i think that's important to just note as we talk about it more is that it wasn't like all males were against uh women getting educations or against female fraternities so but in, th but in this case the administration was against it and and this particular character and her two friends are going to go ask the administration to approve them having a female fraternity. So why don't you read that section? Let's, let's hear what happens. Okay. I opened my eyes and found President Wilson staring at me. Now, to the matter of our student proposal, he said, Miss Carrington, I dismissed the others as a favor to save you some embarrassment. Why would I have been embarrassed? I'm here to propose an idea, I said, refusing to let fury rise. President Wilson set his fingers in a bridge beneath his chin. Is that so? As I mentioned at the ball, women outside of the seminary often feel lonely as though they don't have a place to belong, I said. When Patrick Everett helped found this college, he fought to integrate the sexes. I can't help but think that when he did, he did it intending for all females to be treated fairly. Whether or not you're aware of it, we're often mocked in our classes by professors as well as fellow students. And unlike the divinity girls who have several outlets to know each other socially, we don't. We need support from each other. We need camaraderie. And right now we absolutely do not have it. Is that all? The old woman's voice cut me off. Her jowls shook as she spoke. You're allowed to attend this college, dear. Isn't that enough? In my days, we weren't permitted to occupy the same building as the men, let alone learn beside them. I wanted to argue that although society had certainly progressed since her time, it wasn't nearly enough. Instead, I nodded. I'm not here to suggest anything new for the classroom. Although reform would be nice, I said, forcing my voice to be steady. I'm simply asking permission to start a women's fraternity, and I'd eventually like to gain a charter to encourage women on other campuses to... No, you're not asking permission, Wilson said, setting his glare on me. You're asking us to allow you to continue it. I felt heat wash my face. I'm afraid I don't follow your meaning. I shifted my eyes just slightly to free myself of the president's stare and found Grant instead. He was looking down at his hands, and at once it was clear. He'd told President Wilson about Beta Z Beta. This time, he hadn't just hoped I'd fail. He'd made sure of it. I wanted to wring his neck. Lily stood and began to walk out of the room. I couldn't blame her. She shouldn't have to risk expulsion along with me. My thoughts raced, trying to come up with a way to explain, to free myself of whatever consequence was to come. But I knew nothing would work. I was stuck. Your bow won't be able to help you this time, President Wilson said. Miss Carrington, one of the professor's aides, made a trip down to the basement of Old Main yesterday to find a place to deposit a few old desks. Do you know what he came across? I shook my head, having no idea if he'd unearthed the fraternity creeds and bylaws. I closed my eyes, trying to call up the image of the papers we'd drawn up. I saw my name clearly on the top of the second page, officially identifying me as president. No one else had had an office yet, <clears throat> I realized, relieved that they wouldn't be able to prove that any of my sisters had had anything to do with it. President Wilson reached into his desk and extracted our creeds and bylaws. Beta Z Beta, clever, he said. I could feel my eyes on the I could feel eyes on the back of my head and knew Mary and Catherine were trying to decide their next move, whether they should remain in their seats and risk being called out for involvement or disappear as Lily had. Without a word, President Wilson flattened the paper on his desktop. Beth Carrington, president, he read, tapping his index finger on my name. I'd say that it's clear you've already begun your fraternity. Who are the others? Them? He tipped his head toward the chairs behind me, but I looked straight ahead. I shook my head. No, sir, I hadn't sought membership yet. He laughed. You mean to tell me that you decided to create what appears to be a fraternity chapter room for yourself? I nodded and he stopped laughing. His nostrils flared and he lifted his hand, smacking it hard on the top of the desk. Who are the others? Each word came out in a low staccato. 
I told you, sir, it's only me. My stays felt as though they'd turned to iron. Secret societies are forbidden, he barked. Okay, and the uh, the conflict and uh, obstacles begin to uh, get uh, more difficult here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the, for the characters, uh, that's good. All right, well, let's do this. Let's shift a little bit before we do the writing life segment, talk a little bit about the Fifth Avenue Artist Society. This story is uh, also involves secrets uh, of love and history uh, and, and strong women like you have in uh, in Secret Sisters. You've already mentioned it involved the Gilded Age of New York. Uh, you've got a main character um, who's an aspiring novelist. Uh, and... You know, in the opening scene, I'm interested, you know, she thinks somebody's going to propose to her that she has grown up with. And, and of course, he does. And he proposes to somebody else. And it's all for money and not love. And uh, then she finds this artist society. Anything you want to say about this little read you're going to do to set it up? Well, you know, just that before the book begins, you do have, again, like I mentioned, um, I, I took um, inspiration from my family. So you have these five siblings, all artists, uh, living in the Gilded Age Bronx, and they're struggling artists. That's just who they are, and so they don't live in any sort of um, any sort of glamour necessarily beyond, again, their family connection to the wealthy of New York, and so Virginia, my main character, is an aspiring novelist. She writes for the Bronx Review, which is a, a newspaper in the Bronx at the time, and her next-door neighbor, Charlie, is um, someone who she's grown up with, but also the love of her life. They both are um, writers and they, and he's an illustrator. So they have dreams or she does at least of them, you know, working together and kind of getting married and they can both continue their art because, you know, as, as people who don't, didn't have a lot of money, they didn't really have a choice. They had to work. And, you know, back, I think in a lot of these, um, a lot of movies on the Gilded Age and, and things like that, you have a lot of women who, for instance, didn't work um, and who were kind of, they had these escorts and they were followed around and made sure, you know, that, that they were groomed, but they didn't have to work. But then the rest of society during that time, the rest of New York, women did have to work. They were working in factories. They were working um, and doing whatever they could to support their families, just like, um, you know, just like really today. So um, at this point, what you're seeing is Virginia. She's actually at a party. Um, she's in her in Charlie's um, library, uh, borrowing a book, and she's trying to get inspiration for um, some of her work in there while Charlie and his family have a party for a distant um, cousin of theirs who's come back from White Plains. So that is where it picks up. Jenny, I tried to call on you earlier today, but you were still in the city. I need to speak with you. He pulled at one of his sideburns. I suppose I can listen so long as I can blame the dullness of the story I'm writing for the review on your interruption. A child's English primer read with more eloquence than the two paragraphs I'd penciled into the notebook I was holding. Is everything all right? Charlie's face paled, but he nodded. He was lying, clearly. Tell me. Everything's fine, Virginia, he said. But Charlie's lips met my forehead and lingered there. Then his fingers clutched the back of my head, holding me as if it were the last time he'd ever see me up close. The only time I'd ever seen Charlie this troubled was at his younger brother's funeral 15 years before. Mr. Aldridge. I jerked from his grasp to find an older man I didn't know in the doorway. I felt Charlie step away from me. Excuse me, it's only... The man coughed, looking from Charlie to me and back again. Your mother asked me to summon you. It's time. Charlie forced a smile and passed me without a glance. Yes, he said, stumbling over the word. I, I suppose it is. What hadn't he told me? 
The last few days played out in my mind. Our afternoon strolling on the high bridge, my trek into the city this morning to purchase a notepad, seeing Mrs. Aldridge and Charlie deep in conversation on the front porch this afternoon. Mrs. Aldridge, she seemed in good health. Surely she hadn't taken ill, not so soon after Mr. Aldridge's death. I followed after Charlie despite my having planned to avoid the party tonight and enjoy the quiet company of the Aldridge's books. Olivia was still playing. I could vaguely hear the slow notes of Oh Promise Me and the guest laughter as I shoved past feathered hats and black jacketed arms to follow Charlie. He stopped in the middle of the room, brought his fingers to his mouth and whistled. I heard my sister's hands lift from the piano, leaving notes singing unfinished on the air. Everyone turned to look at him. I took a deep breath, inhaled the sweet scent of someone's lavender cologne and looked around for anyone I knew. Finding no one beyond Rachel Kent, one of Charlie's distant cousins, over his shoulder, her locks pinned under a purple cap adorned with a stuffed hummingbird. I fleetingly wondered if it was one of my sister Bessie's creations. Miss Kent nodded at me and I grinned back, relieved to find a familiar face beside Olivia's. The reception had been held in Miss Kent's honor, a reunion of sorts with her family acquaintances that she'd lost touch with since moving from the Bronx to White Plains years back. Miss Aldridge had begged Olivia to play for the party and I'd come along hoping to write something profound. Ever since Charlie and I were young, the Aldridge's library had been one of our sanctuaries, the only place beyond our rooms where we could shut out the world and create. If I could have your attention, Charlie shouted, silencing the party's rumble. He glanced at me for a moment before he turned his gaze to the rest of the guests. For quite some time, I've wanted to share something with all of you, and now, it turns out, is precisely the time to do it. Charlie cleared his throat and looked up, staring above the crowd to the windows in front of him. I followed his gaze, finding his mother looking the picture of health, grinning, hands clasped together in anticipation. I balked at my reflection in the glass and tucked a few unruly light brown strands back in their pins. See, there's a particular woman I love, and I cannot go on living without knowing she's mine, he said. I've known her for as long as I can remember. As a young boy, I admired her poise and beauty, and as a man, though I still love her for those things, I think I find the most joy in her passion and her love of the arts that have been so important to both of our families. She is, quite simply, a reflection of what I've always dreamed. His words sounded in my ears, but I barely believed them. I'd longed for this moment for so many years. I glanced at the faces of the strangers around me, their smiles confirmation that they'd heard him too, that this wasn't a delusion. He was finally going to ask me to marry him. My hands were sweating, bald in my skirt, and as his eyes scanned mine, I released the fabric abruptly, the striped gold and white satin falling back to the ground. Charlie, I whispered, but he turned and dropped to his knees. Miss Rachel Kent, will you be, will you be my wife? I took a step back, but stumbled, unable to move. Come with me. Olivia appeared from nowhere and pulled me through the crowd. Before I knew it, I was on the Aldridge's front porch, hearing the door click shut behind me. I couldn't register anything about the last minutes beyond Olivia's long fingers around my wrist and the faraway cheer of the guests. Okay, so Jenny doesn't get off to a good start here uh, in this book. Uh, she thinks she's going to be married uh, to the person that she loves, uh, who she thinks loves her, not just for you know her looks, but for her uh smarts and her writing and everything that goes with it because they've been that way as they've grown up. And now suddenly everything is changing and she's got to go out and uh, make a life of her own and try to, you know, add to the family kitty with her writing. And so she ends up in this kind of artist collective. Is that right? Is that how this goes? Well, kind of. It's um, something <laughs> like, you know, I started to think about it because my, as I mentioned earlier, my family knew all kinds of famous people. We knew like Hamilton Ravel, who was a famous and scandalous actor at the time and several famous um, portrait artists and things like that and writers. And so I started to think, well, how would they have known these people? So I started to think about the Parisian salon salons of the same era and they were very, you know, progressive and forward thinking. And I thought, well, okay, um, maybe let's, let's imagine that there is a uh, Parisian salon on fifth Avenue 
And so what ends up happening is her brother Franklin um, is friends with a guy, John Hopper, who has who has come from comes from a, a very affluent family and has a mansion on Fifth Avenue. And he is a writer himself. And so he hosts these kind of crazy party um, uh, salon gatherings. And that's how Jenny starts to kind of find herself really in her and who she wants to be in her writing and in her life. All right. Well, that's great. I'll have to finish that some of I finished Secret Sisters, enjoyed the book. Uh, I got you know, partway through the Fifth Avenue Artist Society, but I couldn't get two books read before, yeah. I, inter- before I interviewed you with all the other books. <laughs> yeah, so sorry about that. Uh, well, let's do this. For the le- rest of the show here, we're going to do uh, the Writing Life segment. And uh, I'd like to start off talking a little bit, Joy, just about the process of writing historical fiction. And, um, you know, I'm kind of putting it into two buckets here, one being research and one being the writing. Let's start start first with the research and you know, sort of how you do your research, you know, how long you do your research before you write and how you sort of capture and organize, you know, all these facts. Yes. So it can, it varies from book to book. Um, Generally speaking though, what I start with is what I know. So whatever I know of the premise, I just, I write that down. Um, And then I start really doing a deep dive into the specifics of either of the era but if it's the Gilded Age, since I just have been, lived in that sphere for a long time, I know kind of the norms. But what I'll do is I'll look at old newspapers. So I have a subscription to newspapers.com, which I utilize a lot and is so helpful. Um, I do a lot of research there. I look at old journals. I look at um, really just, you know, if, if there's houses or schools, if there's settings that are similar to what I'm, I'm going to be living in for the next, you know, eight months as I write. I look into that. Sometimes I'll interview um, people depending upon the subject matter and if it's applicable. Um, I definitely like to be to be able to go walk around places and get a feel for um, what I'm writing. Uh, unfortunately, in the Fifth Avenue Artist Society, the house um, in the neighborhood is gone, long gone um, in the Bronx. But I could see pictures, for instance, or I could read diaries of my main character. Um, and then I also had the family aspect where I already knew what the storyline, how kind of how the storyline went for them. Um, but with a lot of my subjects, it's just about, um, really doing a deep dive into like what their world was like, because historical fiction is really a lot like writing fantasy. Um, because we're never going to get back there again. We can't ever live that life. Um, and, but the good thing about it is it's like fantasy with, with real pictures and real, uh, like evidence of, that it happened. And so I, I really just love to dive into, I look at, look at old photos and mainly looking at old newspapers too and old, old journals and things just to get the feel of um, the tone. You know, you read some books and some historical books or people tend to try to write this way and the history, the language is very like stifled and very like, you know, proper. But if you read people's journals, you start to realize that they wrote just like you and I. And so it actually helps you, helps you get the converse, get into the character's head um, and the tone of what was going on at the time. And newspapers help because it's about what issues people were talking about and, you know, what was going on and all this stuff. So that's really helpful. I love doing the research. Sometimes I get on a rabbit hole with research because it's just a great thing to do. I have to remind myself this is fiction and I can get the main point and move on. <laughs> so, so this is sort of a process question. How do you capture uh, and store all this information, the historical text, the photographs, the articles? 
because if you go down rabbit holes like you've described, you could end up with a lot of information. How do you keep it organized? Uh, what are your What are your secrets there? Not much. I just I'm old school. I just print it off and keep it in a folder. Um, but I also feel like if I just keep it in a folder, whether that's digitally or you know hard copy, you have to digest that information. So generally speaking, what I do is I also have a notebook that when I come across something that's pertinent to my character or to the story, I write it down. Um, as you know, okay, well, this could this could work with a certain plot point, or I really like this setting. I thought it was very um, immersive. So, just certain things like that. I keep that all together. Really, what it's providing, re- what research provides, really is not so much about my storylines necessarily, more than it is a context of what I'm stepping into when I step into the book, and what I want the reader to feel when they step into the story, um, and making sure that I have a great immersive con context for starting the work, I guess you could say. And, and how do you know, Joy, when you have enough to get started? Well, it's funny is, so when I first started writing historical fiction, um, I asked, I love the Outlander series uh, by Dana Gabaldon. And I asked her one time, I think I just tweeted her, I said, well, how do you, you know, do you just do all your research in the beginning? Or do you, what do you do? Do you do some in the middle? And she said, if I waited to do all the research at the beginning, I would never start which is so true. You know, you, there's, you just can't. So one of the reasons it takes me a little longer to write historical fiction than I imagine anything else, because, you know, I may have to stop and research ball gowns of the time. I may have to stop and look and see, well, what was happening on July 21st, 1883, something like that. And I may just need that for the storyline. So there's a lot of stopping in the middle um, and that's okay. So that's, that's why I'm, I usually spend, you know, three months researching and, but then that's not all of the research I do. It's, you know, a process throughout. Well, maybe I need to, uh, you know, flash Joy Calloway uh, talks about her meeting with Diana Gabaldon. We'll probably have 100,000 <laughs> people tune into the podcast because people have really become obsessed with Outlander and uh, the series and the books and everything. So, all right. So, okay, you, you might get started then before uh, you finished your research. Uh, when you're writing, are you an outliner or do you free flow or how do you go about it? I'm an outliner mostly because I think primarily out of necessity, um, you know, my kids are uh, six and five. And so, you know, there's not a lot of downtime really for me, especially now that school's out for indefinitely. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I think that for me, it's um, this thing where I have to write at least some points down. I started doing that when my kids were babies and I would write during nap time. It would just be like, okay, I got to rush down the stairs, grab my outline. What's next, you know, and not have to think too much about it. Just get started on the writing. Um, So I like that. But I would say I'm not an extensive outliner. It's very much just a legal pad with like some bullet points. And there's always room for the book to surprise me. And it always does. So with young children, as you said, um, when do you write and where do you write? Well, it used to be when I had when they were napping that I would just, you know, come down to my desk and down in my sunroom, which is where I am right now, and and churn out like an hour and a half or as long as they'd sleep, you know. Um, prior to that, I would work after work, you know, I would write after work. And now during this time, I was just telling my husband this, I have like such a sporadic writing schedule. I'm trying to establish one, um, but it's turned out to be, you know, whenever the kids are exhausted from doing anything else and I turn on the show for them or whether um, – it's, you know, after they get to bed or something like that. I've tried in the morning, but 
you know, coffee, coffee kicks in at like, you know, if I get up at five, it kicks in about five thirty. my brain's maybe ready to go about six and then the kids are up. So that didn't really work out too well. <laughs> okay. Your background, uh, versus what you chose to write. You, you got a BA in journalism and public relations, uh, your you mass communication. You also uh, do some publicity work for others. Um, how do you think this background helped you as a historical fiction writer? I think it's a good thing in that, you know, authors, regardless of which route you go, whether that's self-publishing, traditional publishing, indie publishing, you're going to be asked to market yourself. That's something that they don't really, it's not like people tell you that from the get-go, but you know, you may have a publicist at at your publishing house, but that doesn't mean you're not going to have to do anything. And I think it served me well in that because I did, I do know what to do. Um, But I also feel like I'm probably the most annoying person ever to my publicist when I'm like, Hey, what about this idea? How about this? How about that? You know, because I do know kind of the ins and outs of PR. Um, but no, I think it's, I think it's a good thing because we're all Mark. We ought to be, unfortunately, writing a small portion. You know, this writing such a small portion of what we do as authors. And, um, we have to be prepared to do other things. Um, and marketing takes up a lot of time. Yeah. But now in terms of the writing itself, um, you know, when you're working as a publicist for others and you're writing these catchy short pieces, or if you're a journalist writing a, you know, quick hitting article or something, it's a little bit different than trying to spin a story uh, into a novel. So yeah. it's it's kind of maybe different skill sets to some extent. Did you have to kind of think through how you were going to do that, given what you'd been taught in terms of the way you were supposed to write? Well, strangely enough, I think because I've always been such a reader, it didn't really, um, when I started writing, I started thinking, wow, this is very stream of consciousness, you know, it's very, you know, free flowing versus, you know, obviously with PR or with journalism, it's you're coming up with these short snippets all the time. And to me, it's just two different, almost two different sides of the brain for me, you know, that it's, you have to get into two different mindsets in order to do one or the other. So. Well, let's talk just a second about that side of your brain that uh, a lot of writers uh, don't like too much or they go kicking and screaming. It's that marketing side. It's uh, talk just a minute about, you know, why authors should treat marketing as just as important a part of what they're doing as the writing, because if they don't find readers, you know, what's the purpose, right? Right. I think it's all about, you know, if you want a career out of, if you want a career as a, a writer, as an author, you're going to have to find readers. And in, um, in, you know, any day and age, it's just kind of been the name of the game is getting your book in the reader's hands. And the way you do that is through marketing and PR. And, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing. I don't, I particularly don't even like to market myself and I, you know, I know how to do it, but um, we all have to be in right now in publishing. It just is a fact. You have to be a marketer to be an author. Um, I don't, I think they have, they go hand in hand and they're both very essential. Otherwise, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you'd get your book out in the world or how people would find it or how people would know about it um, or how you're going to get any sales. (laughs) So so do you have, you know, a lot of authors releasing books right when uh, the pandemic hit? And of course, uh, we're recording in the summer, but it's going to come out in the fall and who knows where we'll be at that time. But I imagine um, we're still not going to see a vaccine at that point. If I hope I'm wrong. I hope this, uh, yeah. somebody's listening and says, oh, you're long, wrong, Landis. We've got a vaccine now. But, uh, you know, knowing that, uh, what are some of the things authors can be doing during this pandemic environment? It doesn't allow them to get into bookstores, doesn't allow them to do certain things they did before. 
I think it just takes getting a little more creative and um, looking at where you can find your readers. What are your readers doing? You know, I think for women's fiction, um, I was doing something with one of my friends, an initiative where we reached out to retirement communities because um, folks my grandparents' age are the people who are, are really turning out the reading, who I've noticed can go through a book a day, um, and also who are currently pretty um, pretty isolated just because, you know, we can't have COVID going into retirement communities. And so we thought, you know, we're isolated um, because of COVID. They're isolated because of COVID. Let's maybe just join together and do some cool virtual book clubs um, with with them. And it's turned out really well. We've had um, some pretty good success doing that. And it's, it works both ways. So it's, it's a win-win for both people, both, both parties. Um, I also think, you know, anything digital you can do like this, um, looking at doing, you know, little, little book club videos, doing, um, reaching out to Instagram um, influencers and things like that to be just a little bit more creative in your marketing um, when you can't get out there, maybe partnering with some bookstores. I know Parkrade Books is in a couple digit, couple virtual events, and they've been pretty successful. And you know, there's there's a lot of things to do. I think that's the name of the game with marketing is being adaptable, and being able to kind of see and explore different trends to see what works for your books. And um, so, what, what's what's one of the more memorable um, author events that you've had uh, in promoting your work? Well. I'm going to go for funny because I always like to tell this story. <laughs> I was, uh, I, my first book was in Costco's nationwide. So I did a, a Costco tour and it was the most interesting experience ever. And I loved going to them because you always had these people that would wander up to you. And I think I was at the one in, in Myrtle Beach uh, when this happened, but this guy comes up to me and he's telling me this whole story about how he knows UFO, UFOs are real and um, how he's seen four different UFOs. And he sits there and talks to me for like 45 minutes about these UFOs. And then he says, now don't take my story idea. I'm like, okay, I won't. Then I think, okay, well, that's it for the day. A woman comes up to me and tells me that um, she's seen a mermaid before. And I thought, what is going on in this store? You know, is it, is there, what's happening? So she, she again tells me, I'm thinking about writing it. Could you um, give me some pointers on <laughs> how I'm going to write a memoir. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm going to believe your mermaid idea, but all right. So, you know, the fun part about book, book events is just meeting people, you know, and man, I had a great laugh over that. <laughs> so I still tell it. So I, I think it's so much fun. That's the great thing about being a writer, right? That's right. Well, I'll be looking for a future book that has both a, maybe it'll be a mermaid who comes to earth on a UFO or something. Who knows? Yeah. Um, okay. So what was the best money you ever spent? as a writer. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, my friend in our group here in Charlotte, we have a, have four of us who have toured together extensively. My friends, Mary Beth Whalen, Kim Wright and Erica Marks went on a big tour together. We had, when my first book came out, coincidentally, all of them also had books coming out in the same summer. So we went on a big tour and Kim told me something that was so valuable and it was to, to spend the money and meet your people. So um, I had never actually met my agent in person, my editor in person, um, and, or even gone to some of the, like the Southern independent book association conference. And she really encouraged me. She said, there's nothing like a face-to-face -face meeting with someone to get to know the people who are working with you. 
And that was so valuable. You know, I took her advice. I went to New York, I met my agent, I met my editor and my publishing team. And it was such a valuable thing because you get to know someone on a personal level and business is just, you can make it a little less, you know, formal and you can um, actually get to know the people who are, who are working for you. And that I feel like makes you want to work harder for them and it makes them want to work harder for you. And I just think it's such a valuable thing to do. So that was the best advice I've, I've gotten with in regard to the, the industry. So Joy, a lot of times uh, people will uh, have an idea for a story. They haven't written a book before, but they get scared away from the idea. They don't want to jump in. Um, what was it that made you decide, yeah, this is, this is something I want to do? I don't know about you, but when I wrote my first book, I was just one summer, I'd read a bunch of books and I thought, you know, I'm going to try that. And I, and I did it and it was awful. You know, it was like three books too long, had lots of plot holes, <laughs> but I thought it was great. I, mean, I made my own cover for it too. So oh, yeah. that was really nice, but it really made me, it caught, it made me catch the bug, you know? And I was like, well, I can't stop now. I've got to really work at this. But I will say, you know, it's not as time intense as people think. You get do like a thousand words a day, which should take, I don't know, an hour or so. If you can carve that out, then really you can have a book done in pretty short order. And I just think if, you know, it's, it's a fun job. This is a job that you get to, that I am thankful I get to do because, man, I can imagine anything. I can write about anything. I can be anywhere. And it's just such a great, a great career. And I tell people all the time that if they have any interest in doing it to jump in, we, you know, everyone has a story to tell. And I love hearing about how people come up with their motivations or just reading different books. And so I think, wow, it'd be a great, it'd be a great world if people could just get it on the page, you know, and we could hear everyone's perspective that way. So I, I do think it's, it's, um, it's not as time intense as people think it is. It's not as big of an endeavor. And I think if you just break it down, for me, it helps to break it down into little chunks. So don't say, oh man, I, I don't think I can ever write, you know, 350 pages. Instead, put it in smaller terms. Say, okay, I'm going to write the first five. And tomorrow I'm going to write another five or two or whatever it, whatever it takes because that adds up over time and pretty soon you've got a book. Yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't uh, scare people off by talking to them about what happens after you write that first book. <laughs> And all the editing that has to follow and all the rewrites and the redrafts and everything, because you, that is a part of the process, right? Yeah. You know, some people, I mean, you could be lucky. You could be one of those people, those unicorns who just turn out the first one, just instant bestseller. That happens sometimes, right? But yeah. I don't know. I think that's part of the process. It makes your, it makes your books better to, to edit it and to understand the process. It makes your skin a little tougher to realize that you're not just going to automatically turn out gold every time, you know, um, it makes your work better. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good thing. Final question is a fill in the blank. Uh, I write because. I write really because it gives me joy and it, um, it makes me also, I love it with my kids. My kids see me writing and, you know, I tell my kids, I'm like the other day we were all sitting outside. I was finishing a chapter and they were looking at me and I'm like, go get some paper. You can write a book too. And they came up with some great stories, you know, and it was, it's this thing where it's like, you can imagine anything. You can be anybody in anywhere and in, in a book. Um, and that's why readers love reading, of course. But for me, it's also about getting to step into someone's shoes and really embody um, a person or a time or, 
I don't know. It's just such a joyful thing for me. And I, I think um, that's what keeps me going on it. That's what keeps me wanting to write. Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, Joy, we're going to be looking for your next book uh, when it comes out. Um, I know you're, uh, you've got something in the works. We won't talk too much about that. We'll leave that till you're ready to, to share more about that. But I want to thank you for uh, being on Charlotte Reader's podcast. Thanks for having me on, Landis. It's been such a pleasure. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.